powerful that, isn't it? His love is still reaching. His blood still speaks. A better word than the blood of Abel. His blood is what has made us what we are. And it's beautiful. And we've got a long way to go. <laughs> We're far from the finished article. But his blood speaks. And his blood transforms. And it is because of his blood that we are what we are. That we are this beautiful family that Richard already talked about. This beautiful, diverse family of God. Who else could do it? Who else could do it? And, you know, God has designed us to be family because it shows the world what he's like. It's not just for in here. He's designed us to be family because it shows the world what he's like, our love for one another. And it is a radical love. It's a sacrificial love that Jesus is talking about. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Well, you don't get much more radical and sacrificial than that. Our love for one another speaks to the world about Jesus. It glorifies Jesus. And equally, when there is a lack of love for one another and there is disunity, it does the opposite of glorifying Jesus. It dishonors him. It, it kind of brings his name into disrepute. And um, so it's important <laughs> that we grasp this. It's important that we work at this. Families are complicated. I said that a couple of weeks ago. We know families are complicated and the church is no different. And so we're focusing on these different areas uh, in church life, in family life that can be complicated, particularly areas of diversity that can, if we don't handle them in the right way, they can be difficult and complicated. They can bring division if we don't approach them in the right way. Can lead to people feeling excluded from the family instead of embraced by the family. So in future evenings after these ones, we're going to be looking at things like socioeconomic diversity, different backgrounds. And I've got a brilliant speaker coming next week to speak on like Joe McNamara uh, from London, fantastic speaker. Um, then we, we've got relational diversity, single, married. We're made up of single people and married people. Huge area that we need to get to grips with. Wendy Mann is coming to speak on that. She'll be absolutely brilliant. And uh, we have generational diversity, young and old, all together. We're trying to get our heads around that and how all that works as well. But what I want to focus on this evening is ethnic diversity, racial diversity, because we've got so many different nations in this church. People from different cultures, different skin colors, and lots of differences between all these different cultures. And what I want to focus on this evening is primarily the positive picture of that, the hopeful picture that we have in Christ, God's beautiful design. And it is, right from the creation, right from the very beginning, diversity has been written into God's creation from being male and female through to the table of nations, through to God's promise to Abraham to reach the nations, through to what we see in the book of Acts and beyond. It's always been in God's plan, and it's a beautiful picture. And that's what I want to focus on, that positive picture, that positive vision of it. But I think it is important to acknowledge and be mindful of the fact that for many people, this is uh, an area of particular pain and, and very, very deep pain for some people. It's just over three years since the death of George Floyd, and I mention that because, well, whatever you think of that, it, what, you, what is beyond doubt is that that was a seismic event in our world. It was a cultural uh, moment that impact reverberated around the world 
It was also mixed up with lockdown and all those things that were going on. The world was kind of in, in absolute chaos, and it, it still is. But um, that particular event kicked off this huge chain reaction that brought out a lot of stuff, a lot of stored up pain and injustice resulting from experiencing racism. It brought the subject of racism very much to the fore. And of course, there have been some good things that have come out of that, some positive outcomes, and there have been many very unhelpful things, many destructive outcomes that actually just serve to deepen that divide. But I remember speaking to a number of people at the time in the church who said that what this had done, this had brought stuff up that they hadn't really thought about for years. It had kind of lain dormant for years, but there was suddenly all this stuff and pain brought to the surface. And because I don't know what it's like to be on the receiving end of racism, but having listened to some of the experiences that people had been through, and particularly experiences in childhood for some, it's, it's horrific. It really is evil. And you, you, when you hear the damage that has been done, some people, you think, that is, it is evil. It, it's a, racism, where it exists, it's a grotesque offense against the image of God that we are all made in. So let's not be under any illusions about that, about the evil uh, of racism. And while, of course, much has changed for the better, you know, our society and our culture and attitudes towards race today are very different today compared to, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Very different, but racism remains an evil in our society. And as followers of Jesus, of course, we are to stand up and speak out against that kind of thing and any injustice wherever we see it. And we also have a responsibility for our own hearts, all of us, whatever our skin color, we all have a responsibility for our own hearts to be aware of any prejudice that lies in our own hearts and to repent of it, to bring it to the cross. We have responsibilities as followers of Jesus. But the sad reality is that as much as things have changed and as much as some things have improved and continue to change, the fundamental underlying problem of racism won't go away. It just won't until Jesus returns because it's about sin. It's a problem of the human heart. Somebody put it like this. They said it's, it's, it's just as much or even more a sin issue than a skin issue. But in the church, it is and it has to be different. It has to be different. See, in the book of Acts, the church was born into a racially divided world. Then it was Jew and Gentile. That's the context into which the church was born. Jews, Gentiles. That was a deep division, a really deep a really deep division. But the church very quickly became this countercultural beacon of hope where Jew and Gentile worshipped together. And it took some work. It didn't happen automatically, but it did happen. It was a countercultural beacon of hope. And that is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians 2 when he talked about that dividing wall of hostility that had been torn down. He said, because, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that dividing wall has been torn down and Jesus is making one new man, one new humanity out of the two, making peace, reconciling them through the cross. And the early church was not without its problems. Issues, many issues arose in the early church, just as they do in the church today, but they remained united in their diversity. Only the power of the cross can do that. Only the power of the cross, because ultimately it is a sin issue, and only the death and resurrection of Jesus can deal with our sin. But the fact is, and we all know this, the world is broken. And there's a reason for that, <laughs> and it's sin. 
And the world is being destroyed by division and by prejudice and all these things. And we just look at the, the polarization of our society, the, the, the fractures of our society, the division of our society. And try as we might, humans have a terrible track record of trying to solve those problems. We just make things worse, mainly because we think the problem is outside of ourselves. You know, so racism is something there that we can fix, that, that you know, the solution can come from within. The reverse is true. The problem lies within, and the solution comes from outside. So humans have a terrible track record of trying to fix this kind of stuff. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but we tend to make things worse. In the church, though, we have a far better story to tell the world about diversity. A far better story, and that's where I want us to focus on that better story, the hope we have in Christ both now and for eternity and lift our eyes to him, not to dismiss any pain that people may feel, but to bring it to the cross because that's where you find healing because you don't want to be going around with open wounds. You don't want to be going around carrying that pain. You want to bring it to the cross, but equally we need to bring prejudice to the cross because that's where we find forgiveness of our sin. It's the cross that makes the difference and we deal with those things in the light of eternity in Christ. Now, we are so blessed, as we said here at King's, with so many different nations coming together here. And, and you know, diversity is written into our vision, our God-given vision, to be a diverse church of thousands that surrounds and saturates High Wycombe with the love of Jesus. We are a diverse church in a diverse town, but the vision isn't just about achieving diversity, like, yeah, hey, we're diverse, well done us. We haven't done that. It's God's work. The vision is about unity, in that diversity, achieving unity, and what that shows people about the gospel, what it shows people about Jesus, and the hope that comes through him. So listen to what it says in Colossians 3, verses 9 to 14. This is Paul writing to Christians. He says, you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity right in the middle of that passage it says Christ is all and is in all therefore because that is true therefore in the church you pursue unity you go after unity because Christ is all and is in all and he unites us and what Paul is saying really in there is it, it's not so much about whether you're from this nation or that nation or from this background, or that background, or you have this skin color, or that skin color. As important as those things are in our identity, the more important distinction by far, the more important thing that shapes your identity is whether or not you are in Christ. That is at the core of our identity if you are followers of Jesus. It is also what is strikingly absent from your identity if you are not a follower of Jesus. See, I have far more in common with the people at King's Church Kathmandu, even though culturally we are hugely different. Or I have far more in common with someone in a church in Brazil or a church in Ghana than I do with my white British neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. 
because it's about being in Christ. That's the overriding thing. That is what forms our identity. That's what binds us together in unity. God unites us in our differences. And in this fractured and polarized and divided society, our unity is such a powerful and radical expression of the gospel. Let's not underestimate that. It's a powerful and radical beacon of the hope that we have in Christ. It shows the world what Christ is like. So we've got to be intentional about pursuing unity in our diversity. So we need to have a lot of grace for one another. We need to have a lot of forgiveness for one another because sometimes we'll get it wrong. We'll make mistakes. I'm sure I will have said things up here that in one culture will be received well, in another culture will be downright offensive, and I didn't even know. So we need grace for one another. We need forgiveness for one another. That's God's way that we just heard about in Colossians 3. We also need, if I might just take a slight detour here, we, we also need a lot of wisdom in what voices we listen to, what, what voices we allow to shape our thoughts and opinions. And let's face it, we are bombarded through the media with all this stuff, opinions and thoughts and ideologies. We're bombarded with it. And so we've got to be really careful what we allow to form our opinions. I said a couple of weeks ago, the problem, one problem Paul pointed out with the church in Corinth was that there was too much Corinth in the church. In other words, there was too much of the surrounding culture that had got into the church, and it was destructive. Of course, the same happens today. And there's a, there, is a, there is a narrative in the world at the moment, a prevalent narrative that is everywhere. And it affects so much, probably, that we haven't even thought of. A, a narrative in the world that is really all about dividing people into groups and group identities. You know, you might have heard people talk about identity politics and, and this kind of stuff. Group identity, that's why people talk about, like, the transgender community or you're a white male, so you're in this category, or you're black, so you're in that kind of category. And the groups tend to be arranged in terms of how oppressed you have been or you are or how much of an oppressor you are, or the group is, and by extension, therefore, you are. Because you're in that group, you are an oppressor. Now, of course, the language sounds great, doesn't it? Oppressed, oppressor, because the Bible's full of stuff about liberating the oppressed. That's a good thing. It's a, it's a biblical thing, but the narrative in the world is not a biblical one, and we've got to be wary of it. It's destructive. It's divisive, that narrative. You know, it's the kind of thing that results in some of the really crazy insanity that we see around us where you know somebody gets absolutely annihilated for daring to suggest that a person who menstruates is called a woman or politicians who are terrified they're not unable to they're just terrified to define or try to define what a woman is leading to a statement that just from a from a, a statement from a senior politician a very senior politician forgive me if this offends you, but who said, yes, 99.9% .9 of women don't have a penis. And you think, what did you just say? How do, you think, how on earth have we got to this? Well, it's largely wrapped up in this stuff, group identity, oppressed, oppressor. Now, the major problem with this narrative in the world is that it divides people into good people and bad people. It, it, it divides these groups into... Uh, yeah, good people and bad people. There's a, there's a kind of a, a moral virtue or a lack of moral virtue that is attributed to being part of a particular group. So I, as a white male, I am, I am the ultimate oppressor. You know, so a number of you should really mistrust me, hate me, 
because I'm the ultimate oppressor according to this narrative. You must have seen this. You must have experienced this. And in this narrative, the solution to the problem, again, it's the, solu- the problem is somewhere out there and the solution is within. The solution is like human activism, to liberate, liberate the oppressed. This is where things like Pride Month, when did it, I don't know when it became a month, but Pride Month started coming about. And this kind of, you know, and the aim is to bring liberation. Again, it sounds really good, doesn't it? It sounds like a good thing, liberation for the oppressed. It's not. It's not about liberating the oppressed at all. And what inevitably ends up happening is the opposite to liberation of anyone who's oppressed. You you teach people who are oppressed to continue to be victims. And you teach people you're, you're an oppressor. You divide people because you continue to see things through these lenses and these categories. It's wrong. And it's evil, actually. It's toxic. What ultimately happens under that narrative is the oppressed become the oppressors. It flips on its head. And we see it. We see it happening all around us. The biblical narrative is all about liberating the oppressed. But the biblical narrative makes the point that we're all oppressed by sin and we're also all the problem. We are both oppressed and oppressor, all of us. We're all sinners and there is only one liberator. And that is Jesus. The liberation does not come from within us. God help us if that's what we believe. The liberation comes from outside, it comes from Jesus. There is one narrative in the world which comes under the guise of liberating the oppressed, but it just perpetuates and creates more division. And then there's the other narrative, the biblical narrative, which is where you find genuine redemption, genuine liberation, genuine justice, and it's only in Jesus. So if you start to kind of think about a particular ideology and worldview and Jesus is not at the center of it, reject it. It's not good. It might sound good, but it won't lead anywhere good. So what about, why am I saying that in the context of race? Well, in the context of race, you sometimes hear that narrative of like, well, all white people are like this. All white people should do this. Everyone, all white people should repent and whatever. And then all black people are like this. And all black people think this. It's simply not true. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work it out. It's just not true. All black people think that... Nonsense. You know, you're... The experience of a black person growing up in the UK in the 1970s is very, very different from the experience of somebody who's moved over from Nigeria in the last 10 years. Totally different experiences. How can you say all black people think this? All black people... It's absolute nonsense. And it completely ignores the richness within these groups. It's just not true. It's a dangerous ideology. It's the kind of thinking that reinforces divisions and it's anti-gospel. It's against God's design for diversity where difference is celebrated, not used to divide. So different. And yet one ends up in division, one ends up in unity and togetherness. So we've got to be really careful with what voices we listen to. Be careful with what we allow to influence and shape our thoughts and opinions because we don't want worldly culture in the church. We want biblical culture. We need biblical culture. We need kingdom culture in the church. This is why a rhythm of scripture is so important. So you get to see what does the word of God say about this? Because that is our foundation. Facebook is not. Facebook experts are not our foundation for what we believe about life. The Bible is. God's word that's eternal, that's lasted for the last however many thousand years, that is our foundation. So let's be careful what we listen to. 
we see God's design for diversity in the early church as, as, as it spreads across the world in the book of Acts. Uh, there are many, many differences, but there's also unity. So there is oneness in the early church, even in all the manyness, even in all the differences. There's one God, there's one faith, there's one baptism, but you have all these different styles and you have different expressions, you have different cultures, you have different languages, and it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. See, you've got to have both. You've got to have both oneness and manyness, oneness and difference. Where you only have one of those things, it doesn't lead anywhere good. So, for example, where you have one, but you don't have the many, you don't have the difference, it's just conformity. And it's monotonous. It's boring. Um, And if you've ever had to sit through a primary school music performance, and uh, forgive me, if you're a primary school teacher, I have been one as well, so I, I speak with experience. You know, because all the children are at a pretty early stage of learning whatever instrument, you know, recorder or trumpet or whatever it is, um, it's, it's making me shudder even as I think of it. But what they're doing is they're only able to play the basic melody. Uh, and so they're all playing the same note, if you're lucky. Um, and of course, if you're there and you're watching your child, it's all very lovely, and oh, I'm so proud of little so-and-so, and you know, oh, isn't it wonderful to see them playing together? Of course, but it does get a bit monotonous. You know? I mean, they're actually some of the worst times I've ever had to sit through, I've got to be honest. <laughs> so where you have one, but you don't have the difference, you don't have many, it's, it's monotonous, it's conformity. But conversely, if you have the many, but you don't have the oneness, well, that's just everybody doing their own thing, and it's just chaos, and it's rather like one of the music lessons I used to teach as a primary school teacher. Kids, go and pick up an instrument and go and express yourselves. And again, it was horrific. It was not my gift. It was horrific. It was just indescribably awful. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. So where you have only one of those things, it doesn't lead to any good, but when you have one and you have many, you get something like this. listening to that (laughs) in a symphony you have all these different sounds you have different instruments you've got different notes they're being played at different times but somehow they all work in harmony around this overarching piece of music to produce something that is beautiful and something which moves you you know actually if you watch that video you see by the end that the one playing the over she's just in tears and people in the audience are in tears because there's something so beautiful about that harmony, and the church is meant to be like that. Church is meant to be a symphony, working in harmony around the gospel. Because a symphony doesn't just happen, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of practice. In rehearsal, there will sometimes be jarring notes that happen. Someone makes a mistake, there's a clashing note that happens. 
Same is true of diversity in the church. It can lead to challenges. It can lead to misunderstandings. It can lead to issues. We see it in the early church over things like circumcision and food. And we see a big diversity challenge in Acts chapter 6 where the Grecian Jews are complaining against the Hebraic Jews about how their widows were being treated in terms of how food was being distributed. So there's a cultural and ethnic division going on here. Hebraic Jews, Grecian Jews, there's a cultural, ethnic division happening. But the solution's beautiful because leaders are appointed to oversee that distribution of food and all the leaders they appoint have Greek names. And so it seems that the the people from the offended party were appointed to lead, presumably with the agreement of the other party, to oversee the just distribution of food to all parties, to oversee the care of widows in all parties. They're reconciled, and we see the result of that reconciliation in the very next verse in Acts 6, which says, so, because of this, the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. It's missional. This is missional, all of it. The jarring, clashing notes were corrected. They, they learned from it. They listened to it. They didn't dismiss it. They found a unifying solution that brought reconciliation, and the resulting symphony drew people because of its beauty. It's what the church is to be like. Diversity does, and it will bring challenges, but the secular story simply doesn't have the solution. The worldly narrative, the worldly story just makes the problem worse, but in the church, we have a far better story to tell. In the church, we're to work out all the challenges in the light and the power of the cross, remembering that we are all saved by grace through faith, all of us, regardless of our nationality, our background, our culture. We were all sinners. We were all outsiders, every single one of us, who have been brought in and forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus. So we are all one in Christ. There is nothing to make anyone here better than anybody else. We're all forgiven sinners. Again, it says in Colossians 3.11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. That's what binds us together. Even in the most challenging of circumstances, we are one in Christ. And I've said this before, but King's Church, High Wycombe, yes, it's located in Britain, but this is not a British church. It's Jesus' church. It's his church Which means that if I stand up here, or any of us stands up here and talks about ethnic or racial diversity, it's not about white people tokenistically welcoming black people into our white church. Or British people with a British culture welcoming non-British people with non-British cultures into our British church. No, we're all outsiders, invited in, allowed in by Jesus to sit at his table together. That's what the church is. So nobody here needs to conform to a British culture. No one. No one needs to conform to a British culture or a white culture, whatever that may be. I don't really know what that means. You be who you are. And, you know, we see it. It's wonderful. But be who you are all the more. Be who you are. Bring who you are. And if there are some clashing notes, it's okay. We're family and we learn from it together. We're all one in Christ. We're united around his song It's about finding kingdom culture in and through all these beautiful different cultures we have here at King's and how all those different cultures play different parts and different notes in creating this beautiful gospel symphony that tells the world about the beauty and the glory and the power of God. We have a better story to tell about diversity. So let's make sure we tell it. Let's make sure we tell that story. We need to strive to live that story out. 
It's part of loving one another as Jesus has loved us. It's part of being church as family. So we need to make every effort to grow in in grace and in forgiveness, in understanding, in unity. How do we do that? We do it through being intentional about building friendships with others, genuine friendships with people who are different from us. People from a different culture, different background, sitting down over a meal together, sharing stories together, sharing your life with one another, building relationship, building friendship, building trust, building understanding. We've got to be intentional about that because it won't just happen because we all have a tendency to hang out with people who are just like us. That's our default. We've got to be intentional about hanging out with people who are different from us and learning from each other. Unity and diversity shows the power of God at work in the church. And anything less than oneness makes the gospel look untrue. If we are not one, it makes the gospel look untrue. So it's about unity without uniformity. It's about diversity without division. That has been God's goal all along, and it displays his glory. I'm just going to finish with my favorite illustration that I've used several times before, but I don't care, because it's my favorite illustration, which is that the growth and the rise of the people of God throughout history is a bit like the Amazon River. So the Amazon River starts as this little trickle in the mountains of Peru, and it's small, and it's insignificant. But as the river starts to just wind through Peru and then on into Brazil, it starts to grow, it starts to become more significant, it starts to widen and deepen, it starts to actually shape the landscape. It's what we see happening through uh, to Israel as we wind our way through the Old Testament. You know, they start small, insignificant, and then they grow, they grow, they grow, and they start to shape the landscape and the world around them. But when the Amazon reaches the Brazilian rainforest, that's where things really start to kick off. And it's like where we we get to the ministry of Jesus and the book of Acts in the Bible and the Holy Spirit is poured out. All these other rivers and tributaries start to flow into the Amazon from all different directions, from all different countries, which is what happens in the gospel, in the book of Acts. Different nations start to be added into the people of God. And so there's this massive and explosive expansion in the people of God throughout the world. And it becomes more and more noticeable, has a greater and greater impact, becomes more and more powerful. Rivers and tributaries continue to join. And that's still happening today as different people groups who previously were unreached because of brave people who go out to reach the ends of the earth, they become reached and they join in this, this torrent of the people of God and it becomes more and more noticeable again. Now these tributaries that come in, they don't just remain in their own separate channels, they come into the river. They come right into that river. They, they, they take on the identity of the people of God while retaining the history of where they came from. We become one in our diversity as we join in this river of God, praise God. And by the time the Amazon reaches the Atlantic Ocean, it is so big and so powerful and has such momentum that it turns the salty ocean water fresh up to 200 miles out to sea. What a beautiful picture. What a great picture of the church and all that the church is called to be. It's what John saw in his vision in Revelation 7, where he said there, Before me, I turned, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they're there and they're singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, the world wants that kind of unity without Jesus. The world wants the unity without the Lamb on the throne. It's just impossible. It's only possible when it's centered around Jesus. And in this vision, John clearly sees difference different tribes, different tongues, but he also sees one. One people who are many, many people who have become one. This is the church that Jesus is building. We're not there yet, 
But that is the church that Jesus is building. That's where we're going, a renewed world where there is no more uh, injustice. There is no more division or discrimination. There's no more tears. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. That's the hope that we have because of the cross of Christ. That's the glorious symphony that we're all part of, the big story of God that we're all caught up in. So let us honor Jesus in our unity. Let us honor him and be obedient to his command to love one another as he has loved us and be united in our diversity. Let us fix our eyes on the hope that we have in Jesus and the unity that we enjoy in Christ. Let let us declare his glory to the world and turn the salty waters fresh. Bring life where there is no life because we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. Christ is all and he is in all. Amen? Amen. Amen.